Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to episode 160 of Coming Up Next. We'll get to the interview with Kevin Clobber, the editor of Academy Award winning documentary Icarus in just a second. But if you'd like to support the show that comes to you for free each and every week, head to comingupnext.com.au. You'll find links to iTunes, to Stitcher and to Podbean. Uh, At each of said links, you can do one of three things. You can subscribe to the show, you can rate the show out of five, preferably a five, and you can leave a review for the show. Uh, you do that. I'll keep bringing you the show each and every week. All right, shall we get into it? Welcome, welcome, welcome back, friends. Uh, this is coming up next, the podcast, episode 160. It's a lot of episodes, it's a lot of podcasts. Uh, thank you for tuning in each and every week to, uh, to hear how top creatives around the world are making a life and a career out of their chosen profession. And a special thank you goes out to Craig Melville for coming on the show last week. Craig is a, uh, is a TV director from Australia. He directed a lot of John Safran's work. He directed a lot of the Chasers stuff if you're from Australia. You'll no doubt be familiar with, uh, with that work. It's uh, documentary comedy stuff. And he's recently made the move over to the States and has been uh, doing some great work over there. Head to comingupnext.com.au if you haven't checked it out. It's available there for Nutter for you to listen to. Kevin Clubber joins me this week for a uh, for a ramble it's not the kind of uh usual ramble that i that i have the kind of start to end of career or start to present of career conversation um kevin is the editor or was the editor on the academy award-winning documentary icarus and if you haven't seen icarus uh definitely hit pause on this now and go open your netflix and uh, and chuck it on unless you're driving in which case do not chuck it on um, but you should watch it because this episode is uh, is all about the process of uh, of putting that together from an editorial point of view. Uh, so it's rife with uh, with spoilers, with uh, anecdotes, and with you know quite a lot of digging into uh, the process of putting that film together. Um, so if you don't want the film to be spoiled. And, uh, and you do want to have context for this conversation, I would uh, strongly recommend you check it out before listening. Uh, Kevin's uh, other credits, I guess, to give you a bit of context, he, uh, he was the editor. He got his start editing the documentary Pearl Jam 20. He's cut 20 feet from stardom. He cut the documentary Harmontown about Dan Harmon. He cut uh, the series Brew Dogs. Um, he's quite a prolific documentary editor. Uh, and today we're going to talk all about the process of putting together Icarus. At what stage, I suppose, to begin with, did you were you brought onto the project? Well, I was brought into the project by a, a person that I work with a lot named Doug Blush, who is a supervising editor, who I actually um, first worked with on um, 20 Feet from Stardom. 
And he contacted me saying, there's this really exciting film. I can't tell you anything about it. I literally <laughs> can't tell you anything about it. I was like, well, what's it about? He's like, I can't even tell you that. And I was like, just tell me a word. He's like Olympics. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Intriguing. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, you can't tell me anything about it, but it's about the Olympics. That means something big and probably pretty nasty. Right. And so, <laughs> and so anyway, and then I met um, I met with the director, Brian Fogel, and he showed me the sizzle reel that they had put together, um, basically out of all of the footage up until Gregory, right after Gregory flees Russia with the help of Brian, you know, after that first report comes out on November 9th that says that Russia has a state-sponsored doping program, then Gregory's in danger. So um, I saw this, this sizzle that was like a 20-minute cut, you know, that set up what Brian was planning on doing with the film of, you know, doing two races, doping, not doping, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw Gregory and I was like, and then he told me, you know, this guy's going to be a big part of the film. I said, yeah, obviously he's fascinating in every way. Um, where is he? And he's like, oh, he's here. And I was like, where? He's like, he's in, you know, he's in Santa Monica. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, so uh, when can you start? And I was like, soon. This is very intriguing and interesting. And then I, so I joined the project um, a couple of months after Gregory had, had landed in, um, in LA. And at that time, we knew very little about what was going on, um, what he had really done in Russia with, with Sochi. So it, the, the process of meeting him was, first of all, very bizarre for me because as, a, as an editor of a documentary, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about kind of my philosophy of how I see like you know, uh, constructing characters and documentaries, you know, I really believe that, you know, all documentaries, sorry to say, folks, they're all constructed, you know, and that that's not a bad word. It's just kind of the reality of storytelling. Right. And um, when I take footage of, of, of a person of a live person that's been shot, you know, or an interview, you know, that person is, you know, they're a real person in that footage, but I get to kind of create a character out of the footage. Right. And ideally, you know, hopefully if the editor's doing their job well, they're doing a faithful, truthful portrayal. But for me, it's very strange to suddenly meet the person that's on the screen right away, especially when they're as duplicitous as Mr. Gregory Rachenkoff, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, he's no Dan Harmon, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it's funny, Dan Harmon has his duplicity too, but it's uh, it's not, he doesn't bathe in it like <laughs> Mr. Gregory Rachenkoff does. I mean, Gregory is truly obsessed with, you know, these ideas of being the best doper and anti-doper in the world, right? I mean, the man spent his entire life dedicated to mastering the art of doping while simultaneously finding a way to circumvent his own testing. Yeah, there's that, there's that incredible uh, quote that he says sort of towards the end of the film about how, uh, how, how Russia is like world, what does he say, world-class or world-level cheaters. Oh, yes, because we are top-level cheaters. Top-level cheaters. Because, what is it? It's this great quote because he says, it's basically the, the basic concept of, of what drives all undercover operations in, in police investigations. It's this concept that, you know, he says, we are top-level cheaters to overcheat us. Oh, what is it? How, how, how one could overcheat us? Something about how to overcheat us, you'd have to be better at us than cheating. So, but how could you do that? Because we're the best cheaters. And, and, and to be frank, like one thing, I mean, this is kind of just jumping around in ideas really quickly. But one thing I'll say about that movie that's very interesting is I, you know, it, it really points a finger at Russia because that's what it's about because of Gregory being in the film. Right. But it's not like every I mean, every country is guilty of not a state sponsored program for sure, but of, you know, 
doping having athletes that that use performance enhancing drugs well the, the, <laughs> I mean, the, it's, the film is cut the, the premise of the film or the launching point is uh, is lance armstrong's doping yeah. scandal yeah exactly so um and that's really it's funny because in the early iterations of the film before this goes back to the process of making the film so you know i spent me and my uh my co-editors you know john bertain and um some other really great assistants and additional editors um we spent the first, you know, three to four months working on what we thought was a film about, you know, we didn't know where it would end, but we knew we thought that more of the film would be Brian's journey and story with his two races. Naturally, right? Because you you, you look at what you have in front of you with material regarding material, and then you say, what's the story we can build? And the biggest challenge and strangest part about making this movie beyond just the subject matter was the fact that the movie itself was constantly expanding. Like I like to think of stories as, you know, you get to draw the, 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 the border around the story, meaning how big is it, right? Is it a small, some stories are very small. There some, some narratives are locked in stories, right? Where it's all in one room. But um, with this, with this film, because things kept happening literally around us, I mean, it would be like, Oh, like Nikita, you know, Gregory's friend um, who, you know, he worked with in anti-doping in Russia is found dead. I remember that day very, very well. It was insane. It must have been very intense. It, it was a day when we all realized that this was a much bigger than just Gregory. And we knew that the information that we had and he had would um, end up changing sport in some way. Right. And so there was a big discussion once that uh, once we knew that Rio was coming up. And the decision was made, well, we can't withhold this until Rio and just reveal it in the film because that will just be such a blow to sport, right? Especially considering that Gregory comes from that world. Um, We couldn't do that. So that's when it was like, oh, then we have to release it, you know? Um, And then that also conflate, you know, of course, as you see in the film, you know, fell right behind with all the the danger surrounding Gregory, Um, that was very real. I mean, he was with us almost every day in the edit phase because he was truly afraid um, to be alone. Um, and he was really, you know, he's a very friendly, friendly man. I mean, I became pretty close with him, me and the other editor, John, um, and everybody did. You know, we, 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 would, we, we literally would go have drinks after, you know, um, editing with Gregory. Would you be looking over yeah. your shoulder while, while that was happening or was it just kind of... Oh, really we were really, uh, we were thinking about it. He was thinking about it more than anybody, of course, but we were just really all kind of bathing in the insanity of it because none of us, we all knew this was big, but it was truly all kind of unfolding around us. And all you can really do is just sit back and kind of take it in and do, I was just trying to do my job regarding making the best film I could. And a lot of it, um, you know, as, as the story emerged and then as I got to know Gregory more, you know, I learned about his favorite book, 1984. Um, you know, that, that was integrated into the film as a structural device uh, using, you know, we footage of him, you know, reading. Um, uh, and then also we, we recorded voiceover with him, you know, reading sections from the book. And, and, and within that voiceover session actually is where we also kind of did these impromptu interviews with him where we talked about his relationship to the book and, it was just fascinating because as soon as I learned that, you know, he first read it in 1989 in Russia. Why? Oh, because it was abandoned at that point. Of course. <laughs> Doesn't that say so much already? And then the fact that it, he says, you know, it was a roadmap. It, it, it taught me, you know, points to define my life. It, you know, it's just like, 
because it's funny as an editor, you know, I'm always looking for these kernels of truth about people, you know, like uh, if you try to make a narrative out of someone's life, there are these kernels of like, I guess you'd call them belief nodes (laughs) or something, you know, like if you, I'm I'm trying to think of a weird analogy or weird metaphor that would combine like storytelling concepts with like life. Right. Like, like belief systems, because, you know, when, when someone says it was a roadmap to my life, whatever that is, that's a heavy thing. And it's like, okay. And and then I thought to myself, well, why not use that as a, as a roadmap for the movie? (laughs) Yeah. Brilliant. (laughs) You know, I'm, yeah, that goes to like, I have a weird, like, no, a weird, it's just a, a way that I like to work is I really like to think about, you know, in some ways, just trying to channel whatever or whomever that um, subject is that I'm working with, and then figure out what they would do. You know, uh, it's it's a fun thing when you're watching a film, and then you realize, oh, like, this is like their, their fantasy come to life, you know, or it's their memory come to life or whatever it is, like, it's like using cinema to, uh, really kind of uh, using the form in its highest or trying to at least, right? You know, trying to use uh, everything you can to tell a story the most interesting way. Um, and the most, you know, getting at the most truthful way. So going back to the process, I mean, uh, one thing like Brian Fogel, the director, I mean, he is a master of of producing, you know, and of like fun, of fundraising in many ways, or, or not even fundraising, of just getting things done. Like that guy, Brian, I give him so many, so many props for being so tenacious of sticking through that project. And then also, like, when Dan Kogan and Impact Partners came on to help finish it, it was wonderful because Dan is a really great producer as well when it comes to getting things done. So, yeah, like we had a lot of support on it for sure. We needed it because it was, you know, the 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 way that we were having to work was to make cuts relatively quickly to show, you know, show more funders and just keep it moving. But then the cuts were always changing because more things would happen. You know, and we also had to change offices a number of times because of for security reasons. Um, we were there were a number of uh, attempts and successful attempts to hack various people's emails on the project. Wow. <laughs> and that. Yeah. And so that also just made it, you know, we all ended up having to use a private email server through a Swedish uh, company called Proton Mail that uses like encryption and like all of our computers couldn't be connected to the Internet. Yeah, it was a there were moments where it was getting to be like, oh, geez, this is this is not what I signed up for. But at the same time, it is what I signed up for because I knew this was going to be insane. I just didn't realize how insane it was going to be. I mean, I remember the day that we that the, the, the Gregory went into witness protection like and it was a really sad day because I knew that I would not see him for a very, very long time. Yeah. And I guess you forged this kind of relationship with him, not only in real life, but also, I mean, he's present with you kind of at every moment that you're not sleeping at that stage oh well and he is the most i think the most fascinating character i've ever had the privilege to craft and i don't mean that in a self-important way i guess what i mean is i see his character as something that's it's you know it is there whomever crafts it it's there in in his spirit right yeah there's no way you can't take footage of him and make it boring I mean, I mean, interesting, like, like, like he's inevitably interesting no matter what he says on camera, you know, the yeah. biggest challenge with editing him, of course, is, you know, because he lives in this world of doublespeak and doublethink where you really don't know from which side he's speaking. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like it, there was this constant kind of back and forth debate when we were editing the first half of the film about how much to let him lie or withhold truth from Brian. And then how much to let Brian or sometimes kind of force Brian to pry. Otherwise, 
the investigation element and the mystery element kind of would get fizzled out narratively speaking. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was a real kind of a real challenge, you know, because it's like, it, it, it's the, it's the challenge of any story in which you have an unreliable character. The, and especially in documentaries, it's a whole other level, right? Because in documentaries, most people watching docs, most audiences see whatever they happens as truth because it's documentary. And so what happens when, it, when there's a liar in a documentary, right? It's like um, that amazing Orson Welles film, Meth is for Fake, where it's a film about a forger, an art forger. So when, when you decide that this is a project that you're going to undertake uh-huh. uh, and... You know, it starts to evolve beyond, you know, just a kind of anti-doping uh, uh, documentary where Brian's uh, using himself as a kind of guinea pig. Um, how does the process begin to differ from, say, something like a Harmon Town or, um, you know, even like a Brew Dogs or something where, um, where there's a much more... I guess, clear-cut narrative. Uh, how did your process, I guess, differ or evolve through that? So normally, yeah, normally with the documentary, a basic process is, you know, you, you absorb all the material in whatever way you can. You know, usually it's by watching all of it and taking notes somehow. You know, I like to just somehow record my initial reactions to things and quick, quickly grab things that are really important and might be useful. And then as you watch things, you know, uh, the story usually emerges and you also have some ideas of what it is you're making going into it. Right. Cause you know, you like with brew dogs, it's a TV show about craft beer. It's very structured. Um, with most documentaries, you know, it's somewhat more unstructured, but there's a, there's a vision for what the director had initially going into it with what they wanted to do. Mo- usually most of the time, right. Some directors are very open about what they shoot and just kind of shoot everything. Um, do they bring you like a, a script or an outline or a kind of um, story? You no, know, it all depends. It's it's funny because I, I get asked this a lot and it's truly always dependent on the project because it all depends on what kind of work the director and the shooter have done already in terms of how they see this thing working, whatever it is. And very often, you know, my process as an editor is in taking what they want and how they see it working, looking at the material and then seeing, you know, how much overlap there is in terms of what they want and what is there. And then also me saying, looking at it and seeing what I really think is interesting and great and useful and could, you could do with it, right? Because, um, you know, editing is a craft. Um, you can, as you've seen, if, you know, if you go on YouTube and watch like The Shining recut as a, you know... Uh, a romantic comedy. Romantic comedy <laughs> or a, 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 I, I think it's a father-son, you know, like dramedy or like, like uh, you know, n- nice, happy Hallmark movie. You can see that editing, you know, you can do anything you want. So I've come to a point where I know how to, my craft is at a level where I'm confident it doesn't take me forever to figure out how to do something. It's really about making the right choices um, about what you're doing. Um, So as I watch doc, normally with docs, you know, you watch a bunch of footage, you get a sense of what it is. You have lots of talks with the directors and the producers and the shooters about what they're envisioning. And then you start beating out a structure, you know, based on what you have, you divide it into scenes and you start editing the scenes and, the more holistic understanding you have of where you're going and what the thing should be at the end, usually the faster you can get to a product, you know, a, um, a film, a piece of art, however you want to look at it, um, that people, that both the people who made it are happy with and that hopefully people who see it enjoy um, and get something out of. With Icarus, um, <laughs> it was a constant moving target of what is this movie about? Because we knew... 
you know, there's always what happens in a story and then there's what it's about, right? But what happens is like literally this, the plot and then what it's about are like, you know, if you want to talk like you're in English class, it's like the themes, you know, like what are you exploring? Um, with docs, I find it really useful to figure out what those themes are early because it's a lot easier in docs to put kind of jam themes in there or make things a little more overt than in narratives because you have more freedom regarding the craft, right? To just make people say things, put in voiceover, you can switch point of views very quickly. Do you understand? Like it's, um, there's more freedom, I think. Yeah. So anyway, I, with Icarus, you know, the process really differed in that it was that through the, through the understanding and relationship with Mr. Gregory Rachenkoff, um, we, you know, the post team, we discovered um, to really embrace doublethink and duplicity as a corner kind of cornerstone of the film, especially by the end. And then also the idea kind of exploring this, this, the, the, the cost of truth for Gregory, right? Because um, I love the way it ends and I can't take any credit for that, you know, the idea of with that beautiful animation and his last line, that was all John Bertain, my co-editor on the project. And it was when I saw that, when he showed that to me, I, I almost cried. It was, I thought it was so brilliant because it's like, he's given up everything you know, um, for, in terms of his life. Um, and his life is never going to be the same. And he did it, you know, out of a lot of, for a lot of reasons, out of desperation, but he also did it. One of the reasons was because he was actually telling the truth for one of the first times in his entire life. What was the thinking with, uh, with bringing animation into the piece as a, as an element? We knew that we had to cover a lot of things, a lot of story points and scenes that we just didn't have footage for. Um, and we knew we had Gregory as this amazing resource, you know, to, we had so many interviews with him and, um, and he could also help clarify and over and help us, you know, understand how the actual process worked with the, the swapping of the urines at Sochi. So we had a company that we knew we wanted to work with doing that stuff. And they came up with all the visuals and the storyboards for all that, that I thought was great. And then the, um, the hand-drawn animations, again, that was John, John Bertain really spearheaded that by, I think that was a friend of his or someone he knew, a friend of a friend who actually drew those, animate, drew those, those um, drawings and then they were animated, I think, by the same company that did the, um, the doping scheme in Sochi sequence. And I just thought that those drawings, I, just, I loved how evocative they were. I think, I think they initially emerged feeling like there's something out of Gregory's drawings while he's in prison. Um, you know, after, uh, after, you know, the whole, the whole thing happens where he's, he's selling steroids to people on the team, you know, so they can evade, you know, getting the bad drugs from the other doping coaches. Um, and then he's, you know, he's put in prison, um, after trying to kill himself. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I really was impressed with how those turned out. I thought that they, they really like, I'm always, I, as, as an editor and as a doc, you know, filmmaker, I'm always thinking of ways to um, get you psychologically inside of a character's head. And animation is like, I'll admit it. Like, I think it's overused in general because I think it's a, some people just see it as something they, they know they want to put in because they know they like it or they know that it's, a, that it's something that would make their film different. One thing I'll say, sorry to say it folks, like it's not, this make your film different anymore. In general, I see all these things as just tools, you know, and it's all about how you use them. Um, that's the key, I think. Um, and I think it's like specifically with Icarus, I recall it's, it's, uh, it's all motivated from like Gregory's state of being, you know, in a mental hospital after having attempted suicide. 
Um, that's when I think, oh, and there's also, this is a little weird tidbit I, I think might be fun to share is there, there's some weird animations in there. There's like a weird, like, like dragon dog, the dog that gets hit with a sword that then becomes transforms into something else. All that stuff was found by one of our amazing additional editors named Heijin, who is actually from Russia. And um, those are all Russian cartoons. So they're things that Gregory would have watched as a kid. Oh, wow. That's that, was the con- that, was the, that was the concept there. And it's something that no one would ever know. But it's a li- I love doing stuff like that. Little Easter in, egg. In editing. Well, it's just like, I just think, why not? And it's something that if, if only Gregory sees that and, and, and it hits him, that's ha- I'm happy with that. And it, hey, if it works, it doesn't matter where it came from. But if it has an extra layer, oh, geez. You know? Yeah. I suppose on that, on that note of... Um defining i guess uh, the success of, of the piece and and the various parts of the piece as the story was starting to really take shape what was the feeling i guess amongst you and your team and brian in terms of the impact that this was going to have on a global scale and did it exceed that or did it meet that or what was the kind of result of that oh it was I don't even really know how to answer that in a way because it's like I can only speak from my my experience of it. But I know that from my experience of it, it was a we all knew this was going to be big. Brian, Brian knew it more than anybody, frankly, because Brian was the one that was having to sell it to people all the time to raise more money to keep it going. So, you know, better for better or worse, he believed it more than anybody else, but definitely for the better at the end of the day, because, you know, because of his belief in it and everyone pushing so hard. You know, it did have an impact both at Sundance and then, you know, it it, it, it did win the Oscar, um, amazingly. And I'll tell one little anecdote. I mean, I specifically remember after having stayed up all night on a cut to finish, because we, we were pulling all-nighters almost weekly to make to make uh, deadlines for edits to show different people to keep raising more money. I'll be frank with you. One thing I'll tell you that I don't think anyone would mind, the legal bills for Mr. Gregory Rachenkov. For, like that came out of the film's budget were so astronomical. Yeah, I could imagine that that it was kind of like we all felt. I, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else, but I know that I felt like pulling all nighters was really me helping Gregory. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, we need this cut so they can keep raising more money to pay the other lawyer. Hopefully, this one won't freak out because he has a business in Russia. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway. I specifically remember staying up all night, driving home. You know, I was working in Santa Monica, driving back to Echo Park, where I live, across town, way, way across town, and then getting up in the morning or afternoon and driving back, you know, to work the next day. And on NPR, there it is. You know, Russia has a state. You know, there's there's a there's Russia d- doped. It's Sochi. This man Gregory Rachenkov came forward. You know, there's the whole story. Brian's on the radio. You know. And I'm just driving to work going, yep, here I go back into it. And I'm getting a little prequel as I go. And now I'm also thinking, oh, I hope they're recording this. I want to use this in the film. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's kind of funny how it all just becomes so consuming. And it's uh, almost surreal in a sense because it becomes you, you become a part of the story of what's going on when it is documentary. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really rare, I think, when especially as an editor, you get to kind of actually be present for a lot of the unfolding of things and it, it was a definite uh it was an eye-opening experience to really see also how things work from the inside regarding media regarding how one leaks stories to the new york times 
and then seeing how you know it works within the, the at least hearing about how it works within the Department of Justice. You know, when you're if if you're subpoenaed, hearing about you know uh, as as it stated in the film, like one of the lawyers I think who's blurred out talks about how uh, Department of Justice loves to try people for conspiracy charges because they're so broad, and it's a way they can basically get people to um, side with the U.S. government to share information. It's just leverage, you know. But it's it's just kind of you know it, it all it all made sense to me in a weird way because here I was you know being uh, bathed in the world of of professional sport that is rife with negotiations and cheating and and yeah big surprise you know any sort of bureaucratic organization is similar. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's funny I I I've, I'm kind of a, a a geek for like finance and like high finance sco- stories and the economic crisis and everything. I I'm I'm kind of a white collar crime fan. Not that I'm for it. I just like people who bust it. You know what I mean? Like Matt Taibbi. And it's interesting how the world of like the regulatory bodies in finance are very similar to sport in the sense that they're run by former heads of the organizations that they're supposed to be regulating. That's why there's very little regulation. You know, it's like the same kind of cycles, sport and finance. Were there any, uh, I suppose, other than the kind of obvious ones, uh, any major challenges that you faced in putting this together aside from, you know, feeling terrified that you might be killed by the KGB at any moment uh, in terms Um, of like the practical side of putting it together? Oh, well, it was really just figuring out the best way to structure and balance, you know, the first half or third with, with the end of the film, you know, and figuring out how to best, uh, Move, move you along through those first 30 to 40 minutes um, so that you're aware that this is all about Brian and Gregory's relationship. And like the emphasis is, is not, I, it, you know, it's a tricky balance because it, it's like the more you try to pump up, you know, uh, speaking of the craft of editing, the more you try to pump up like the first you know, beginning of the movie regarding what Brian's doing, the more the audience is almost kind of, confused when it turns so it there was a weird balancing effect or balancing effort that was made uh that took a lot of work just because you know everything was shot to be uh the film in terms of the two races you're right we had all the material necessary to make this very clean arc i mean it wouldn't have been a horribly interesting film considering the result of the second race (laughs) (laughs) you know it's like it would have been a very sad kind of blah blah ending if Gregory was, you know, instead of Gregory, you actually had Mr. Don Catlin just advising him on how to beat the test. Right. Yeah. But, um, but, um, the biggest challenge I think was just working with this, you know, it's very challenging when you have a movie that truly is two movies in one. And like, there was a lot of discussion and, and, and there's also a lot of opinions. A lot of my friends and coworkers, you know, clients have opinions about that movie in terms of what they think should have happened to make it even better. You know? And like, I've heard people tell me you should have lost everything with the races just make it about gregory a biopic about gregory it's like yeah that would have been really interesting that's not the movie that we had and part of the joy of that film i think is in this unfolding of the mystery and the oh my god i can't believe this is exploding type of element of the film absolutely you know like i love i love how it starts with brian taking his bike off this rack with this you know in, you know, with this like candy cam footage with his dog, you're like, what is this? I thought this was going to be about Russia. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember the first time I watched it, usually when I'm watching films, I, I take note of like the time, like what's happening at certain points in the film. And 
I remember thinking at about the half, like the half hour mark, I was thinking, and I didn't know that much about it when I first watched. I remember thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to go for another hour and a half. And then 15 minutes later, I guess, is when it all starts to unfurl and unravel in front of you. And it was just quite a, a, a mind-blowing um, reveal, I guess, because it uh, it's not the sort of way that a documentary would normally unfold. I would say it's not the way a typical story would unfold because it breaks all these rules of storytelling, right? But it, but it works, I think, because it's a documentary and you know that it's real. So you keep going with it. Like, like from a storytelling perspective, if I were like to grade the structure of this movie, if I were like teaching a story structure class, I'd be like, this movie is flawed. There's two movies here. What's wrong? you know i mean i've had people tell me that i don't take offense to it at all i'm like yeah there's two movies there the movie's about duplicity (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i suppose when you you know you did your online and you did your final export and the film was in the can and off it went in out into the world what was what was the feeling for you specifically because i guess you would have been tied up in it for such a long time period at that point yeah i mean it's a it's it kind of had a slow long trail and that you know it got it, it premiered at sundance the film changed uh slightly between sundance and when netflix released it and and i was helping i wasn't doing the major actually i did i did work i did work like about a week on the on the the changes with netflix um with john and then so it's kind of funny, like there were all these big, it was a long, slow trail for me in terms of working on it, of, of it finally being done. And, you know, one thing I'll say for me, it's funny when films get done because they take so long to come out, you know, that it's a, usually by the time a film that I worked on is actually released and people are talking about it, I've, I've already, now I'm working on something two or three projects later. So it's a, always a strange feeling when I get to return back to this time of my life that I, you know, hadn't, hadn't, haven't thought about for, for literally years, right? Well, how, um, how do you uh, reflect on the, the, the experience as a whole? It was truly the craziest time in my entire life. I had never felt... I never felt like I was part of something that involved information that I knew in my brain that was damaging to countries. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, it was like a it, it it added a weight to my work as a as an editor and as someone who works in the world of documentaries and nonfiction storytelling. It added a weight to that that I'd never felt before. And I guess what I mean by that is it just felt it's not that I felt like I was doing something quote unquote important. That word is I don't know what that word means. You know, it's all I can say is I, I as it made me feel it, it made me feel like um like what I was doing would actually change something beyond just changing individual people. But that being said, it's funny even when I say that out loud, because in my heart, I believe that changing individual people is more powerful than making the IOC say, we're sorry. I think that's like the power of storytelling. And that's like, like getting my mother in, like having my mother-in-law ask me if Gregory is okay after seeing that movie. And being sincerely concerned, being like, oh, my God, is he okay? Like, what's what's up with him? I'm so worried about him. That was like, I, w- I, I mean, I was like, oh, he's fine. Don't worry. Like, he's fine. But it, her concern in, in the back of my mind made me go, wow, like, good job, Kevin. 
like you made you made him really likable. And I'm not saying that that was difficult at all. But to be fair, the guy is a duplicitous, you know, mastermind. Like he's not Fred Rogers. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, it's not easy to make everybody like him. And that's also not like a necessity for storytelling in general. But at the same time, you have to care about Gregory Rachenkov. You have to because it's, it's his the most interesting thing about that film is, is his life and his story. And I think that the film is obviously a triumph. Uh, and I suppose when you set out to make any film, uh, what you want, what, what you seek to do is to affect people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's like just ha having an impact on somebody um, emotionally, you know, doing, making any sort of work, whether it's even not even making a film, whether it's, you know, whatever work of art, like, I think that is, that is like the baseline of when you know that you're doing something, right? It's like, it's like crossing the first threshold of creating something is when you know that it has an impact on somebody who looks at it or experiences it. And then of course, the next layer is like, what's the impact? And is that what you wanted? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember in film school, that being a big, like, it's like in some ways film school is a time I think where you go to, and by the way, when I say film school, you can make your own film school if you wanted to, if you just get a bunch of friends together and get by some cameras and start talking about each other's work. Cause I think it's all about just forcing yourself to make things and then showing it to people and seeing what they think is happening. Cause I'll tell you one thing, most filmmakers, when they start, it's, it sounds so kind of almost mean to say, but most filmmakers don't even know the effect of what they're doing on screen meaning how people are watching it, what they think of that. Cause we're all so wrapped up in ourselves, you know, in, in the way we see the world, we forget that like, no, you have to create a world for other people to enter and then tell them what's going on and show them and make them a part of it. And then get them into their worlds. Otherwise they bring, you know, it's like if your world isn't properly created, especially in the world of docs, if, you're, if you don't create a world in the movie properly, I think people bring their, their world too much of it into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, like they absolutely. fill their, they fill what they think is going on or what they, what they believe, you know, they fill it. And like, like Icarus is a good example. Like Brian, Brian has no qualms about what he's doing. He doesn't ever question anything about morality and like love it or hate it. That is one essential part of what makes that movie work. I think from a cerebral level is that like you're entering a world from the very beginning where we're doing bad things. <laughs> It's not like, and I, and I could imagine that working with uh, a director who's also the lead character and the producer of the film could have uh, a significant number of uh, challenges or hurdles to overcome, but he doesn't appear to have that kind of uh, level of self-awareness about him when he's on camera that makes it a really subjective kind of... Um, perspective it, it feels like there's a there's at least some objectivity in the editorial of it good thank you for that i mean that that's that, that I, I think that is a really big compliment because i think that you know the way that john and i and the other edit, you know people on the editorial team crafted brian's character like i'm really proud of it and all like i guess what i mean by that is you know he's so he's so laid back like on screen and off screen to work with you know um he's very laissez-faire you know and, and, and the biggest challenge, I think, in many ways was to, in some ways, it's like, because he was so wrapped up, like, understandably so, he was so wrapped up in, in the film he thought he was making, 
which also involved his own body. It's very internal. It's very personal, right? So he was so wrapped up in that that a lot of the challenge was just to refocus the film, editorially speaking, on his relationship with Gregory, which was very real. I mean, they really did become very close friends. Tell you that, you know? Um, And then also to craft, like I think I mentioned earlier, to craft like just how he... um, is moments when he's questioning Gregory moments when he's, you know, um, wondering, um, is this guy really telling me the truth? You know, like those, those are crucial moments in the first third of the film, I think, because it's like, you just have to feel, I feel like in some ways, like Brian's not an everyman character and that you don't necessarily identify with him in terms of what he's doing, especially when you watch him like inject steroids into his butt. But, um, but that being said, he is our hero going on a journey and then along the way he meets gregory and then the movie takes this weird structural turn where it, it breaks all the rules <laughs> right and then we enter because really what it is is it's, it's two movies in one right it's a super size movie with doping which then transforms into a thriller yeah. a real life thriller where people are dying you know um and it and i and that's why it was so insane to work on i mean i said earlier it was the most insane time of my life because i I mean, when I went back to the whole thing about it's not that it feels important. I think it's just it was it just felt like I was in the middle of something actually real where there's actual life and death stakes going on. And people's lives are forever changed by what's happening on, you know, around the office. I mean, to give you a sense, too, like like that that scene where Gregory and Brian are listening to the to the lawyer right after Gregory um gave gave the information to the New York Times and the lawyer says, you know, the, the Department of Justice is going to terminate your deal. And I remember that day because me and John, the other editor, were literally sitting outside of that office listening to that conversation while it was being shot. Because that was in our edit suites. That was like the, the, the office downstairs in our edit base in Santa Monica. You know? Yeah, wow. And like, so so when I, when I see this movie, when I watch it now, I, I remember where I was in every scene. It, I mean, it is a trip for me to watch it. <laughs> it, must be, it must be an absolute uh, mind-melding uh, experience to have been a part of. Um, I'm very, and I'm very grateful for you giving me a, a little behind-the-curtain peek at what You're it was. Welcome. I feel like we could, uh, I mean, I could pick your brain about this for hours and hours. I, uh, I end all of my podcasts with the same question, Kevin even though this has been a slightly uh, out-of-the-box episode. The question is, what makes you silly? It would be my, I guess I can answer, what makes me silly would be my spiritual guide, Paisley. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> In what way does Paisley make you silly? Oh, oh, well, he just, like, I just hear, it, it's really just like, it's not a voice, like like an actual auditory voice. It's more just like the name that I give my instinct when I'm working. Right. <laughs> and sometimes my instinct, sometimes my instinct tells me these bizarre ideas, like make it a rom-com, <laughs> you know, Icarus, and, then, the rom-com. And, then, and then before I know what I'm digging into the music, bin, I pull out the comedy orchestration cues. I throw it in, I put in a title card and it works. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so there you go. That's what makes me silly. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Kevin. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.